cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. You're tuned to the Daily Mavic Show on cliffcentral.com. What a past couple of weeks we had. I'm uh, really excited to be back in the studio. Greg Nichols and I, as usual, and joined with two extra special guests, Simon Allison and Jenny Munasami. It's been a while. Welcome back. I feel like we're not extra special if we're here all the time. I know. I like. I, I expected Jesus. more fanfare and a bigger welcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, did, you guys didn't even say hello. Yeah, Kingsley, you used to build us up. You know, we yeah. had. Uh, you know, you did some praise singing before welcoming. We've got some bottled water in the studio. Greg <laughs> and Periscope. This, that's that's something. I'm just recovering from the Oscars, guys. Forgive me. I was I was struggling with the whole sort of moonlight la la land switch over thing. With anybody? The, anybody? With the you? wrong envelope. That was pretty. That that got me. I, I was yeah. I was actually tweeted about this yesterday. So imagine if the if the NC conference and they say and the. <laughs> And then, oops, wait, sorry, it's the wrong number. It's the wrong poser. Well, uh, maybe it will be KPMG, aren't they uh, implicated in the. <laughs> well, it's the Electoral Institute of South Africa who normally does it. And it's, it's chaotic as it is. I mean, you barely know what's going on. Uh, anyway. So it's not impossible. It's not impossible. It's very possible, yeah. <laughs> um, let's get started. Renjani. You've written quite a bit over the past couple of weeks, more and there seems to be more than you ever wanted to. <laughs> it's going to be a big run up to elections, so I hope you've got some in the reserve tank. But there's been so many rumors about this cabinet reshuffle, and it just won't go away. And it's over the past year, probably longer than that, just murmurs and murmurs, and it keeps growing louder and louder. And for a lot of people, the second we saw uh, former ESCOM CEO Brian Molefe uh, sworn into to Parliament, that was a clear sign that the time has come. Do you agree with that? Well, there is no other plausible reason why he was uh, his swearing in was rushed, why he was uh, his membership, uh, uh, you know, was concocted in the northwest province, uh, and and then hastily sworn in the day after the budget. Other than um, uh, him, uh, uh, you know, being lined up to to become a member of cabinet. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't think that Brian Mulefe has you know these indispensable skills that you know Parliament is so desperate for him to come and cry <laughs> about the Saxon or Tribune that you know that, that that this is why all this happened. Mm. That is the only plausible reason. But I'm still not convinced that he had a conversation with President Jacob Zuma, where the president said, "Brian, come to Cape Town. I'm going to make you blah blah whatever okay. it is." Uh, I think that they were still intermediaries because. In my own mind, the way I see the lay of the land, I don't think the president is is fixed on what he wants to do with the cabinet. Okay. I think that you know, it, I think fairly certain that a reshuffle has to happen, but I think the configuration is still being worked out because it is a difficult thing, and because of the reper- repercussions for him politically, not so much. I mean, there will be major repercussions for the country and for the ANC, but I think the president's major concern is the repercussions for him politically. I mean, that's interesting because, I mean, I would think if, if I'm President Jacob Zuma and I have the, this cabinet reshuffle power, then I'm, I'm the most powerful man. Like everything, I can't lose. Whereas you see it as a lot more delicate than that, I think. Well, he's, he's powerful yeah. up until the moment he announces that cabinet. Uh, because at the moment, he, there's, a, there's an axe basically hovering over the, the, the ministers who are there. There's an axe hovering over the rest of us. Uh, you know, those of us who fear for our pension funds and whatever else, because, you know, it, it, it is suspected that, uh, that the target is the finance ministry. And obviously we've seen this. It's not in the, in the ambit of, uh, of conjecture. We've seen 
the the impact of uh, a reckless dabble by the finance ministry. So you know he has power for as as long as there's the threat of a cabinet shuffle. Once he does it, um, whatever he does, um, then the the cards will fall as they will. Uh, so if he does dabble with the with the finance ministry, then there will be a major explosion, and there will be a fall, major fallout in the ANC, and there will be a pushback from the country. If he doesn't, if there's if it's more finessed maneuvers, uh, perhaps it won't. Perhaps, you know, perhaps there, there will there will still be some some kind of pushback from uh, uh, from within the state and from within the ANC and from broader society, but uh, I don't think it would be that big. But be that as as it may. I think that there, there's um, a major game at play, mm. uh, you know, which involves the state institutions like SARS, like the NPA, like the Hawks. And, you know, all of this, they, they're all kind of rotating around this issue of uh, of the finance ministry. So it's a major issue of concern and, uh, and, it's a, and it remains a major threat for all of us. Ranjani, do you have any insight into uh, what is cabinet actually like at the moment? You know, the meetings themselves. It, it must be an extraordinarily hostile place. It is extra, extraordinarily hostile. Look, I, I, you know, I, I, the wheels in government are turning at the moment. That that much we know. Uh, we see from cabinet meetings. We see from uh, you know cabinet statements that come out. We see from uh, the, the statements issued by various ministries. But it's barely moving, and that's the problem. With you know, we all see. Uh, the State of the Nation address and the budget speeches as, uh, as major events of the year, major political events. They set the tone. They assign budgets. But the fact remains is that that, that government is barely functional, uh, that, that it's getting caught up in the implementation. Now, you add all that, uh, you know, you, you have a dysfunctional machinery of the state and you add this uh, this hostility politically um, where people really can't get on. Um, the, the major programs of government that are at stake, such as the, the Disbursement of uh, social grants, mm. um, uh, the issue of the uh, of the public broadcaster, um, and then you have these factional tensions uh, within the cabinet. So it's it's a very unpleasant atmosphere. And I was I was I was speaking to a couple of ministers outside the the budget uh, outside Parliament after the budget, and they said, "Hey man, like you guys, uh, you know, just get over this thing of us getting fired. If we get fired, we get fired. But the the problem here is that we need to like get things moving. You know, this budget is a Signed, and people need to use these budgets, and uh, you know that's what you guys need to to be able to focus on. Um, and you know, the, everybody says you know the media must focus on this and that and the other thing, uh, but but it's a lot to contend with. Uh, a dysfunctional state is is definitely not uh, what South Africa needs right now, particularly with our economic problems. I mean, that's interesting. I'm curious, just this idea of the role of the media, where it sounds what the ministers are trying to say is the more you report on the circus or shuffle, potential reshuffle, the more you feed this frenzy. Whereas perhaps if you just reported more on ex- government executing its functions, then perhaps we may all focus on that. But if we turn a blind eye to the reshuffle, then... Oh, absolutely, yeah. Kinsey. You know, the, yeah. the media is, is at the moment a, a major player in what is unfolding in the country. Yeah. And that is why there's this, this, this targeting of the media as well. Um, you know, there's accusations of the media being played by white minor, minority capital. Um, there's this uh, uh, whole phenomenon of paid Twitter. Um, there's a victimization of journalists. There's this hostility towards the media. Um, so, you know, the, all of this is at play because... 
um, you know, we, the media is not by no means where we should be. Uh, we have major shortcomings in terms of the, the, our coverage, our perspectives, yeah. and even the agenda, uh, you know, that, that, that exists in the media. But the fact remains is that, you know, we are playing a role in terms of holding government accountable to an extent, um, uh, exposing some of the agendas in government, um, reporting on, uh, on, on things that ordinarily would not be known. I mean, we at Daily Maverick have played a major role in, uh, in, in showcasing this problem at SASA. Um, mm. you know, for months That's beforehand, uh, our colleague Marianne Tam has yeah. been writing about this, 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 this coming explosion, um, should the, the, this, this problem not be dealt with. And here we are, we're sitting with it. Um, and, uh, you know, also with regard to this, um, the, the, the infights in government with uh, state institutions up against each other, uh, the Hawks, the NPA, um, uh, the South African Revenue Service, we're playing an, a major role in telling and keeping society informed in imparting knowledge uh, about what is going on and the dangers, the potential dangers to our democracy. So, Many people are threatened by that. Um, you know, uh, ma- many people would rather not have um, uh, that that the finance minister has voice in the media. They would rather have him buried um, and, and uh, you know, put away, uh, you know, uh, sort of silenced in a way. Um, but he's refusing to keep quiet. Uh, you know, he, he he's making his voice heard. He's exposing the agenda against him. He is calling for society, uh, for societal activism to protect uh, the Treasury and government and our democracy. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think that um, there are Important voices at the moment, and there are important roles that everybody needs to be playing. Um, and you know, it's, it, and that is why I think there's so much pressure um, on on the media at the moment. That just you know, this is a crucial political political year. We definitely cannot take our eyes off the ball. Ranjini, you made an interesting point in your article yesterday about this this idea of the cabinet reshuffle and perhaps putting Brian Malefe in as finance minister or deputy finance minister and you linked it um to to the the ANC's um elective congress later in the year and i think the point you made was that if if um, a certain faction can place its man in charge of the national purse strings mm. that faction can effectively get their leader to take over the ANC and win in, come December because all of a sudden they're going to have a lot more money to campaign with. Can you just elaborate a little bit on that? Well, ANC conferences are big budget events. Uh, not just the staging of the conference, but the behind the scenes maneuvers. Um, you must know that the, the ANC, um, at the, at the best of times has over a million members in branches across the country. Um, and it is difficult communicating or with the, those branches directly and in being able to influence branch members directly. Um, you must know that the, the, the mass media barely reaches uh, you know, the far corners of South Africa. Um, and people who, who, who do have a vested interest in the outcome of this elective conference need to be able to communicate for good or bad reasons. Mm. Okay. So they do need resources. So whichever candidates are in, in, in play for this elective conference need 
resources. And that's the reason, for example, that people want, uh, who are back in Kosazana Dlamini Zuma want her in government because, uh, you know, not only does she have a platform in terms of the department she'll be serving, but her security and her travel needs are dealt with. Uh, otherwise, she's basically another unemployed person, and the only platform she would have is, is the churches. Um, now, to ask, answer the broader question about Brian Molefe, is the Treasury, as we know, holds uh, control over uh, how state money is used. Um, and uh, the use of state money is unfortunately not only to run the programs of government. So you can use and manipulate uh, the institutions and the resources of the state for different uh, reasons. And we've seen it in the past. We've seen, um, you know, events held strategically uh, in key battleground areas mm. um, during election periods. We've seen the, the you know, uh, uh, food parcels being handed out, T-shirts being bought, uh, people being given jobs and, uh, you know, uh, strategic jobs or being paid to campaign. And all of that requires money. Um, and it's difficult to draw private sector funding for that kind of campaigning. The only place it can come from is from within the state. Which we, And for, for it to be released from the state, you need people in the treasury to kind of, lo- you know, loosen their grip. On, um, on, on state resources. And I think that is what informs this push for, um, you know, somebody to, to be in the finance ministry who's more lenient, um, and who would allow, uh, you know, more, uh, colorful use of state resources than what Pravin Gordon and Kabisi Jonas would. Nanjan, just taking the idea of, um, perhaps taking the assumption that perhaps Pravin Gordon is, has become sort of too delicate a person uh, to, to, to move in the reshuffle given the issues we had the last time that was attempted and perhaps a replacement of the deputy uh, finance minister. Wouldn't that, I mean, that sounds to me like it would just completely paralyze the ministry if we have a, you know, Pravin Godan as the minister, somebody aligned uh, to, to Jacob Zuma as the deputy and we already have the issues with, with the SARS commission and that sounds comp- like a, a sort of Triangle of just complete dysfunction. It's a hot mess yeah. with uh, between the finance ministry yeah. and SARS, um, and uh, you know we've seen even in the last week there's um, uh, there've been leaks of letters between the two, uh, and and Pravin Gordon you know uh, didn't hold back about his concerns about mm. uh, SARS uh, and the fact that there's a 30 billion rand shortfall in the in the collection of revenue, and obviously that uh, you know from from what he was saying that points to poor leadership of SARS. Um, but yes, there is a, a kind of dysfunctional relationship there. And, you know, one thing that was very noticeable um, uh, during this budget period, so before the minister presents the budget at 2 p.m. on Wednesday, we go into a lockup and, you know, we study mm. all the, the budget documents and then we have an embargoed media briefing with the minister and his team. And you see him sitting there with Mkabishi Jonas, uh, with uh, the governor of the Reserve Bank and with his director uh, general. And, uh, you know, there's this kind of chemistry between mm. them. They understand each other, have a very strong working relationship. They're actually kind of playful. It's kind of, you know, it's kind of cute the way they relate to each other. <laughs> and that's not necessary. I think that's oh, yeah. just kind of by the way, but yeah. they tease each other and, yeah. you know, they get on. But I think that's the source of, uh, of the stability that exists mm. because they're in an extremely hostile environment. There's a lot of hatred against them. There's a lot of people who want to see them fail. And I think the support they give each other is what keeps 
keeps the you know, the wheels turning in the treasury. So I asked the question, you know, I, that 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 day is really um, Minister Gordon's show, but I asked the um, uh, the Director General um, there uh, about whether it would matter. Who occupies those two seats next to him? Mm. That is the minister and deputy minister seat. Um, and whether the budget that they're presenting, uh, that, that entire bundle of documents would hold mm. if those personalities change there. Um, and was, it was quite funny because uh, Minister Gordon actually wanted to protect him from answering that question and he said he'll answer yeah. and, you know, he tried to cushion that, you know, by saying, you know, that the, that there's a strong machinery, but, you know, obviously it does matter. And a very interesting thing happened. The DG intervened and said, Minister, I actually want to answer this question. And he, his answer was, was phenomenal. He said, um, you know, that it's, it, uh, it, it, there's been there was a tremendous effect on the on the treasury when nine twelve happened when mm. Minister Nene was fired, and he said he answered something like, you know, I'm a civil servant, but I'm also a human being, and this this affects all of us. It's very damaging to all of us, uh, you know, to suddenly just uproot us. And and actually, you think about it, them being forced to work with somebody that they know is there to destabilize them mm. and destabilize the agenda and get basically. Get them out of their jobs. Um, that must be very disconcerting, um, and and by that you can see that the, how precarious the situation is in the finance ministry. I mean, absolutely. I'm Ranjani, just finally just turning back to the sort of leadership race that's playing out. Um, I mean, early in the year there seemed to be a feeling that the that the Premier League faction, as they are called, is was pretty clear on what they wanted, and it seems to me at least every time I pick up a paper, there seems to be somebody else who says I, I put my hat in the race, or I'm you know I'm willing to serve if called. So there seems to be you know a lack of unity or clarity on on who's being backed by whom. There appears to be a splintered yeah. agenda now. Um, I think that the women's league is is I think you know they've, uh, you, they, they they it's very, fairly certain to read where they stand that they backing. Susanna Luminizuma, they've been going around with her to churches and they've made no bones about that fact. Um, but I think that we've seen, um, there's a, there's a lining up between the premiers of the, uh, of the Mpumalanga province and the Free State province. Uh, and they definitely are planning to be on, on a slate. So, uh, um, the the premier of the um, Pumalanga province, uh, Didi Mabuza, seems to be lining himself up for the deputy president position in the NC. Now it's not clear who would then be his presidential mm. candidate, because they're not saying that it's going to be in Kosozanat Lamenizuma. So it can be um, Balekambete. It can be Zuelim Kiza. We don't know. But we've seen Ace Makashule come out um, and back him. Um, but we're also seeing there's kind of split messages and um, uh, confusing messages coming from KwaZulu Natal. Um, because the the uh, the chairperson of that province, the provincial chairperson, Sisha Zikalala, at some stage looked fairly certain behind Nkosazanat Lamini Zuma, but he doesn't appear to be that way. And he's also speaking out against, um, you know, this uh, kind of backing of the Gupta agenda. Um, so, you know, he's he's he's. Kind of backpedaling, uh, you know, it seemed as if the Premier League was really, um, very much, uh, dancing to the tune of the, the Guptas. It seems that he, you know, he's, he's backpedaling on that. So I, I'm not sure at this stage who he, who, who the KwaZulu-Natal province would come out behind. Ranjani, um, when we have a new ANC president, end of December, whoever it may be, 
when will we have a new national president? Will Zuma see out his term or will there be a sort of managed transition before then? It depends who's elected in December. So as things stand, all being, things being normal, we'll have a new state president in 2019. Mm. But if a faction emerges that is anti-Zuma, so if you have... Uh, a, a, an entire slate of people or the, the, the balance of power in the NC National Executive Committee post December 2017, um, is anti-Zuma. Um, and, and, uh, you know, they, they are basically leaning towards where the NC stalwarts are leaning, uh, the Save South Africa group is leaning, where they want the president removed from power because they believe that he's the source of the problems. Then you could possibly see a recall before 2019. Um, if there is a group that is, um, that is loyal to the president or a compromise slate, that emerges, then it, in all possibility, the president will see out his term. Thank you. That's such a nice laid out. We were talking a bit before the show and uh, about certain people who are predicting who's going to end up being the president. And I love when you said that's because they're using logic. And, <laughs> and I think you've written on something that some things are just not logical. No, I, so, I, and yeah. I keep saying that, you know, the outcome of this, uh, the, the, the succession battle, yeah. as well as the, the, this whole issue of the cabinet reshuffle, neither of those two things are, are on the basis of logic. And nothing may it, it it doesn't you cannot dot you know follow a dotted line and 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 kind of get into to a to a logical position. Um, it I, neither can you say that, you know these things are in the interest of the country and therefore you know this must follow that. It it does not work like this. Um, so for example, you know somebody was basically sabotaging the future of the country uh, with regard to the, the social grants. Yeah. You know it could basically lead to an implosion in a month yeah. uh, or an explosion in a month. Um, but that person seems fairly secure in her position. But Minister Praveen Gordon, uh, who seems to be holding things together, who fended off a ratings downgrade, mm. he's the person who seems most in danger of losing his job. It's bizarre. Thankfully, we have people like you to make sense of to make sense of the nonsensical. Run Jenny for cabinet. Uh, <laughs> I'd, support, I'd get behind that. I'm a chronic insomniac. Yes, I'm completely All you have to say is, if I am you do called, do not want me in a position of power. All you have to say is, I am called. I will serve. That's, uh, yes, <laughs> that's all you need to say. I'm not a loyal and disciplined cadre. <laughs> Good afternoon. For tuning in the Daily Mavic Show on Clear Central, the wonderful Run Jenny Munusami is just breaking down for us what's going on um, with the national. The leadership race, uh, the murmurs and rumors of a cabinet reshuffle, um, and who's going to end up being the president of the country at the end of the day. Now, turning to another thing that's been making headlines uh, over the past week or so is is the is xenophobia. I mean, it's something that seems to pop up at least once a year, a couple times a year. Um, and Greg, you 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 you've reported and written on this not only recently but over the past couple of years, and 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 you say that it seems to follow quite a predictable pattern in terms of the places we see this flaring up and the kind of types of sort of looting and attacks and sentiments that seem to pop up. Yeah, I think so. It's sort of often one of the keys. Like I think this. Um potential for whether you call it xenophobic attacks or afrophobic attacks or however we define it is always sort of lying under the surface and often what happens so in the recent most recent case um it's hard to link directly back to to johannesburg mayor herman mashaba's comments basically linking undocumented migrants with criminality in the city um but often you see some sort of comments from political leaders or, or societal leaders that sort of stoke the 
stoke the underlying tension and then it just doesn't take very long until you sort of see attacks spread up over different sort of townships and inner city areas which is what we've seen this time and i mean i mean as you just mentioned some people were trying to say no the the, the mayor of johannesburg seemed, you know has to bear some responsibility for this and he's saying no minister malusi gigaba um, also you know, has something to answer for in terms of, you know, preaching a certain uh, message, but actually not coming to the party in terms of, in terms of addressing the issues that have come up. Yeah, I think, I think if we look at, um, what Mayor Mashaba has said, it's interesting to look back. I think it was 2015 at what, um, King Zwelatini said over in, um, KZN, basically sort of comparing foreigners to rubbish and, you know, saying these guys must go. And, very, I think two weeks after that, I think the attacks started flaring up in Durban and they got quite, quite violent around KZN. And there was a South African Human Rights Commission report into, um, into that issue and whether he should bear responsibility for these attacks or not. And it controversially said that he shouldn't. But then there were other reports and a lot of other people saying the king should be blamed and should have to apologize and, and, um, tone his comments down. Um, but I think in this case, I think without a doubt whether, whether Herman Mashaba caused these issues or he didn't, what he said was irresponsible. He should be smart enough, although I think perhaps we're seeing his naivety come out um, because he hasn't been in politics for a very long time. But he should have been smart enough to understand that, yes, we do need to talk about crime in Johannesburg. Um, and, yes, we need to talk about issues of migration. But it's irresponsible because of this sort of tinderbox that we live in on this issue to to directly make these comments that vilify foreigners and and make it seem like a certain foreigners are actually responsible for a lot of our problems. Oh, and then you asked Minister Gagaba. <laughs> yeah, obviously he has a you know some sort of responsibility yeah. too. But it's not yeah. just the minister; it's the whole government. Yeah. You know, these issues of of migration, issues of I guess how how we live together in this sort of multicultural society, um, how we process our foreigners, you know, through home affairs, um, how we provide access and services to to both migrants and locals yeah. and try to ensure that they are able to live in a peaceful environment together, of course, comes down to the national governments and, and how they're performing. Um, I think I think it's two different things. For for Johannes the Johannesburg mayor, it's an issue of him irresponsibly yeah. sort of stoking the flames of this issue. For the ANC national government um, their culpability comes in when, when we ask the questions, are they doing their jobs in handling the issue of migration? Are they doing their jobs in handling issues of crime and, and so forth? Now, Simon, you, you wrote an op-ed quite recently about, um, about you traveling around the continent a couple of years ago and traveling around now and you, um, and you're, you're saying that people are already sort of responding to the things that, uh, to the sort of xenophobic attacks and xenophobic sentiments that come out of the country and, and you've, you've already started feeling that coming back to you? Absolutely. Um, so when I started this job about six years ago, um, whenever I traveled in pretty much any African capital, you know, where are you from? Oh, I'm from South Africa. Oh, that's cool. You know, Bafana Bafana, Nelson Mandela, the Rainbow Nation. Um, and since then, you know, Bafana Bafana haven't qualified for anything. <laughs> Madiba's died and the Rainbow Nation um, is disappearing before our very eyes. Um, and instead, what I get now is, oh, why don't South Africans like us? Why, why, why do you keep beating up foreigners? Why do you keep, um, murdering people? That's not cool. Um, 
it really is a sea change in the way that South Africa is perceived by the rest of the continent. And this has very real world applications. You know, one of the great political theorists, um, whose name I forget, <laughs> um, was it, it was Joseph somebody. It'll <laughs> go. Um, you know, this concept of soft power, yeah. where it's not about guns and bullets, but it's about ideas and cultural capital and entertainment. And, and South Africa has a lot of that. Um, not Stiglitz either. I think Joseph Nye. Um, but then I was worried. I was thinking of Bill Nye, the science guy. So um, it's not him. Anyway, South Africa had so much soft power, and that came from our it is struggle nice. and the resolution of our struggle. Thank you, Kingsley. <laughs> um, Just Google it, confirm. Joseph Nye. Um, we we really have squandered that. Um, and and what that that sort of soft power did for us was it made our entry into Africa so much easier. You know, South African companies going there, um, well, there was a reservoir of goodwill that they had that, that American companies and Brit- European companies didn't have. The sort of suspicion that, that foreigners are greeted with um, didn't apply to South Africans because we were the good guys. You know, we were Pan-Africanists. We were um, progressive. We were liberal. And now that has all been revealed to be a facade, partly just because, well, we were never all those nice things, no. were we? We were always hard-nosed capitalists um, going into to, to, to sort of make money. Um, so people have realized that. Partly it's the type of South Africans that travel overseas, um, or sp- particularly in Africa. Um, a lot of businessmen... Um, a lot of them are, you know, from the the upper echelons of the white monopoly capital companies that we, we talk about so much in this country. They go to other African countries and those same attitudes are pervasive. There's a lot of mercenaries. South African mercenaries are really a big feature of um, the African security dynamic that also, you know, feeds into a certain image of South Africans. But, you know, those are all smaller issues. The big one that I keep hearing about is... Our foreigners, you know, our peoples, you know, our Nigerians, our Ethiopians, whatever, come to South Africa and they get attacked, um, often brutally. And the, the, the networks of information are so interesting because, you know, so let me give you an example. I was in Ethiopia and I was talking to a taxi driver and this conversation came up and he told me about an incident of an Ethiopian man who was beaten up in a township. Um, and when I got back, I looked it up. And I could find absolutely no media reports about this incident. Didn't happen as far as South African or international media was concerned. But I did a little bit more digging and I, I phoned um, one of the NGOs that works on these issues and I said, hey, did you hear about this incident? Oh, yes. It was a real incident. That bit of information hadn't traveled via the sort of main news networks. Mm. It had gone back along the migrant paths. Um, and these stories, anything that happens, rushes back like wildfire, um, back through the countries that people are, are coming to South Africa from. And it is really coloring the perception of South Africa. And I think it's going to make our lives a lot harder. South African businesses, South African diplomats, tourists, even as a journalist, um, I find that doors don't open quite as easily for me as a South African um, as they used to. Um, and this is, you know, I think an unintended side effect of the, the sort of populist policies that, that our politicians are um, 
are, 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 are furthering. I agree with, with Greg that, you know, even when politicians are, you know, um, carefully choosing their words and, you know, they say, oh, we were talking about criminals, not immigrants or whatever. They're doing such an effective job of linking the two issues of criminality and illegal immigration and they're doing it very deliberately. Um, that it really is having huge consequences at home but also overseas. And you've mentioned like really practical examples, especially uh, MTN in Nigeria of where people are literally trying to create a a consequence and saying if you treat us like this in South Africa, we will treat your businesses like this in our country. Exactly. I, I mean, I, I get the sense that um, you know there is this huge rivalry between Nigeria and yep. South Africa. So I get the sense that anytime anything like really bad happens in South <laughs> Africa, the Nigerians are like rub their hands with glee and they're like, oh, we're going to make the most out of this. So the the Nigerian um, government has called for the African Union to launch an investigation into xenophobia in South Africa, which is, I mean, that's just not even what the African Union does. It's, it's a complete PR stunt. Um, but the Nigerian government is milking it for all it's worth. <laughs> there are also organized protests against South African companies in Nigeria. Um, and I think this is partly because South African companies have come into the market and are hoovering up huge important sections of it. The MTN with the telecoms is a big one. ShopRite is another big one. Um, and there is, you know, as in any country, there's, there's always resentment when um, big foreign companies come in and take all the profits. Um, but uh, the other factor is, is just, you know, well, why are South Africans being such assholes? Um, and with the Nigeria-South Africa thing, it also has a long History, you know, this isn't the first time MTN's offices have been protested against. Um, there were the, those visa issues a few years ago, where Nigerians were suddenly, you know, um, um, Nigerians wanting to come to South Africa suddenly had to have like yellow fever certificates and all this nonsense. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's just going to make dealing with. Um, businesses on the continent so much more difficult for South African companies. You know what I've been trying to figure out is why is our president in denial about the issue of xenophobia? Why is he trying to explain it away as crime? Um, because my fear is that for as long as we're in denial about what the source of the problem is, we won't effectively deal with it. But what is the difference in strategy or the approach of government if it's normal crime as opposed to xenophobic crime? I, th I think it's also interesting to, to note that um, the Home Affairs Minister, um, Melissa Gaba, has acknowledged xenophobia, while the President, on the other hand, seems to be continuing on this tone, as he has in recent mm. um, attacks in recent years, always saying, no, this is down to crime. Our people are not xenophobic. And it's also interesting to link to, uh, I don't know if you remember what Tabo Mbeki said when the 2007 or eight attacks happened. He, he actually said something quite similar. Mm. I, th I think it's um, playing into that populism. Um, but we all know it's xenophobic attacks. Everyone knows this. So when Zuma says it's, oh, it's just crime or anti-crime, what he's saying is anti-xenophobia and anti-crime are exactly the same thing. Mm. Um, that's the message that South African audiences will receive. But However, is it a disconnect on his part or is it a deliberate uh, uh, effort on his part to, to, to deny xenoph xenophobia so that the response is different. You'd probably know better than, than we would. I know. think it's the latter. I agree. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because, um, I think that there's a 
there's a heavier responsibility on government and um, and the ruling party um, to to respond to xenophobia and mm. and deep seated hatred in society, and and it goes to uh, an effective failure um, uh, on their part to kind of build social cohesion in mm. our society and also to fit in um, with the rest of the continent, uh, you know, as a, as a functioning democracy um, that understands its role and understands issue of uh, issues of migration i think the failure is 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 uh, on on government is as exposed differently um than if it's uh, you know normal quote uh, normal crime in in quotation marks i think most certainly an interesting point on this aspect is that with the proposed hate speech hate, hate crimes bill that's um currently being discussed one of the interesting things about that is with hate crimes people would now or there's a possibility that let's say if you get charged for uh, injuring someone or whatever it is, or looting a store or something like that, of um, now this this hate crime aspect being tacked on to your to your sentence. Yeah. And then what's interesting about that is that then we will have more statistics and more understanding mm. around around some of these issues mm. because all of a sudden people get who get prosecuted for such for such stuff will not just get prosecuted for a crime; they'll get prosecuted for a hate crime mm. because it's against the, the motivation was because it was against a foreigner. Mm. Interesting. It, it's also from a foreign policy perspective. Yeah. Um, Zuma, it, it's very hard for Zuma to stand with his fellow African leaders and say, hey, we hate African people. Um, we have a problem with this. It's much easier to say, no, this is nothing to do with xenophobia. Mm. Um, it's a face saving tactic as well. Mm. It's sort of having to admit to a broken core of the country's identity. Mm. I mean, but surely, Simon, if this started, you know, we saw the first flare in 2007, 2008, and this is 2017, he, it's surely more ridiculous to stand next to your fellow African leaders and say we do not have a xenophobia problem. Because it's, well, I, th- yeah. I think, I think one thing the world yeah. is learning uh, with leaders all over the world is, is that shame is not a, is not a feature of successful politicians um, or embarrassment. They, they can they can deal with that. Um, and you can always say it's fake news. Or- exactly. <laughs> Actually, on the topic of South Africa on the continent, Simon, you've reported quite you know quite closely around um, the withdrawal of South Africa from the International Criminal Court. Um, and this is probably echo some of Ranjani's uh, comments about you know government barely functioning. Um, so. I think it's fair to say this started with with uh, when uh, Omar al Bashir mm. was in the country, um, and South Africa had a an obligation to arrest him, and did not. And this started the the sort of um, triggered this process that led to South Africa saying we are going to be withdrawing from the ICC. And the courts uh, recently sort of made a ruling on this, and and they say not going to happen. Whoever set up the the Rome Statute, which um, is what governs the International Criminal Court, inserted this really, really clever provision, which says that if you want to withdraw, that's fine. Anyone can withdraw of your own free will. Um, You just have to, you know, write the notice to the Secretary General of the UN. um, And then you have to wait a full year before the withdrawal can take effect. Um, like a cooling off period almost. And so when we had the three withdrawals, African withdrawals in a row, it was, it was South Africa first. They were the first to officially lodge the notice, followed by Burundi, followed by the Gambia. Already the Gambia has reversed its withdrawal. The new president has said, no, this is nonsense. We want to be part of this community. Um, Burundi, 
they're doing it for purely self-interested reasons because the president um, is probably guilty of, of some kind of serious international crime. So they'll probably continue with their thing. Um, South Africa, again, it's interesting. You know, if, if we had been able to withdraw instantly, we would have. And the ICC would then be over. It would be dead no matter what the court said. But because we had this year withdrawal period, um, it meant that there was time for some kind of domestic fight back. And that has taken the form of a, of a, of a legal challenge launched by the Democratic Alliance, um, saying that th- that actual, th- the process by which government withdrew from the court was completely unconstitutional. Um, because they did not consult parliament first. Um, and the DA was saying, you know, parliament had to, you know, ratify this this um entry into the ICC mm. parliament had to oh. make those um ICC laws into the domestic legislation um therefore it's taken out of the uh, purely the national executive's competence and is now partly at least in parliament's jurisdiction um and the high court in pretoria really delivered quite a scathing judgment um, of the government, describing the judgment uh, the, the government as hasty, um, irrational in its decision-making procedures, and um, ultimately said um, that that little notice that yeah. you know the, the actual document handed over to the, to the United Nations was unconstitutional and invalid, um, and so the court ordered the government to revoke it instantly. Uh, now, what that means. Well, first of all, there will be a constitutional court challenge at some point. Um, probably that the constitutional court is, is, is likely to uphold the judgment mm. because it was so, it was unanimous. It was really damning. Um, so working on that presumption that, that, you know, this judgment will stand, what happens now is that the notice gets revoked, um, which means that officially South Africa Never withdrew from the ICC. We are still a full member state of and the ICC. And we go back to another year. And we go back to the drawing board, which starts with getting parliamentary approval. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the Democratic Alliance certainly, and possibly some other opposition parties, will fight that tooth and nail. There will be lengthy pub- public consultations. There will be long drawn out um, parliamentary procedures. Every delaying tactic that um, the DA can throw at this, they will. So we're looking at, you know, even with uh, the ANC's majority in parliament, we're looking at a good six months to get this thing approved. Oh, I think it would be much longer if you, if you go by how parliamentary processes work. Mm. But uh, the other thing is, so you're saying there'll be a constitutional uh, constitutional court challenge. Yeah. On the procedure, right? Yes. What about the idea of a pullout? Could that be challenged? Well, the court, the, the DA did try and, and include that in its case, but the court said that we are not here to discuss the actual substance of whether it's a good idea to be in or out of the constitutional court of the, sorry, ICC. It, it said that's not really the court's job. Like the, the national executive has the mandate to formulate policy. Mm. Um, that is their competence. So it's not the court's competence to say whether a policy is good or bad. Um, it would have the, the competence to say whether a policy is constitutional or unconstitutional. Right. Um, but it seems unlikely that, um, a, you know, a, a becoming a member or not becoming a member of a foreign court, um, would actually specifically violate the pr- provisions of the constitution. Well, it's an interesting debate because that being a, a member state basically 
offers extra protection to the citizens of the country mm. and other people who might be who might suffer human rights abuses by citizens of this kind of this country no it, it's true but what the government is saying is that actually the belonging to the ICC limits its ability to provide um you know peacemaking justice etc um so it says that the court that the ICC actually diminishes its ability to to meet those constitutional goals. And if the executive says that, and the parliament, you get parliamentary approval as well, that as a matter of policy, we think this is a better way to realize these constitutional obligations than the ICC, um, it's going to be very hard for the court to say, well, actually, no, because that's really delving into into the realms of policy. And it, it, it goes back to my point about, about nothing working on the basis of logic, because wouldn't it have been <laughs> logical to to effect a pullout once you have, a, for, for example, an African Court of Justice or something else that provides a constitution, I mean, a, a human rights safeguard on the continent, so that the you know the 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 International Court of uh, Criminal Court is then uh, unnecessary. Well, you know, th- there are two completely separate arguments going on yeah. here. The first is the fascinating legal argument, which is about the constitution and about you know international obligations and how best to affect international justice, and it really is. These debates are very interesting, but you can't take them at face value because we all know that the real argument underneath that is the political argument. Um, so, yes, of course, it would make sense for um, South Africa to wait for there to be an African court before we pull out of the ICC. There's not going to be an African court for at least the next 20 years. Um, nothing that's functional. Um, 20 years? Minimum. We just can't afford it. No one can afford it. Wow. Um, we can't even afford to pay for the African Union, never mind a special African Union court whose budget will be similar to that of the whole operating budget of the AU. Um, So to do that, and this is where it gets interesting, if we do have an African court, Mm. it will be financed by the European Union. So, you know, how much further have we broken the colonial shackles by leaving the ICC just to go into an mm. EU-funded legal institution? Um, it, you know, the whole argument is ridiculous. There is no African court on the table um, for a long time. So, uh, the other thing I've w- been thinking about, so if if we, we pull out uh, at whatever stage, say say we were allowed to pull out now from with the, with the one-year countdown, could it um, protect us retrospectively? So the whole this all comes from the the um, Al Bashir matter. Mm-hmm. So th- that violation of the warrant does it cancel it? Mm, it's a good question. So the Bashir matter is again is is sort of completely separate to this. There is no international consequences really for South Africa not arresting Bashir. So the court, the ICC doesn't have the power to say, hey, you didn't uphold your obligation, so you have to now pay a huge fine but or anything. So, so it was never really an issue that South Africa would face real consequences. There is a meeting uh, April 7th um, where South Africa will go to The Hague, the, the ICC um, representatives will be there. It's a pre-trial hearing to see, you know, if South Africa is going to get a, a nice rap on the knuckles. But that's really, in terms of consequences, that's that's all. And no, it doesn't. Um, it, it it doesn't you know, invalidate that process. Mm. So South Africa. Withdrew. My understanding of it was that because the 
ICC is accountable to the UN, that South Africa standing at the UN could be impacted. By the, the, the ICC is not accountable to the UN. That's a that's a misnomer. Um, the the ICC does not has not a UN body. It's not actually formally attached to the UN. Some of the you know it 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 is. That's where its genesis was the UN. But and you have um, to pull out via the UN. Yeah, but but that's just a procedural thing rather than um, an actual linkage. So the ICC really is a a separate institution. The UN has a court, which is the International Court of Justice, which yeah. is part of the UN, um, and the UN could p- potentially apply sanctions. That way but it would really be you know yeah it, it's 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 the icc and the un are not linked to that extent that the un would now um punish well, south africa well then the, the opposite logic then should apply because if there are no repercussions for south africa mm. for violating the warrant on on bashir then why pull out because there are local implications exactly this was never about the law. This was never about international justice. It was about Zuma making a political statement, which is, you know, let's get on the decolonization bandwagon, which he did very effectively. And the, the move was extremely popular in some circles. Um, I was quite shocked at how much support the government had for this decision. Um, I think it was a very probably a very good political move from Zuma. Um, at a time when he was looking very weak, um, it was also in the run-up. I mean, the the constitutional court judgment on the Bashir case, mm. or, or the, the case was due to be heard within a few weeks before the pullout was made. Um, so by pulling out, he also sort of they also pulled out of that constitutional court case. They what they basically said was, okay, we'll accept the high court judgment mm. because we um, are pulling out anyway. So none of this exactly. actually matters. Um, so he avoided the humiliation of another constitutional court mm. smackdown, and um, he won a lot of local support by jumping on the decolonization bandwagon um, and really our international obligations were the very lowest priority in this uh, hierarchy Simon you mentioned and we have to get out of it pretty soon that if South Africa pulled out of the ICC that the ICC is effectively dead no Mm-mm. okay you did no. not say that I didn't okay. say I that you. Okay. Um, we're not that indispensable okay. it's it, it it weakens the ICC okay. by South Africa pulling out, especially because no one cares if Gambia or the Burundi. Burundi pull out. I mean, those are those are small fish. But South Africa's big, and we were such an ideological, or we were such an ideological heavyweight. But um, what's been interesting is that it it didn't kick off the mass withdrawal of African what countries that yeah. um, was expected. And you know why that is? Because actually, the ICC is really useful to most of them. Um, you know, almost all the African cases that are before the ICC have been referred by African countries themselves. Um, they are making use of this facility. Um, it, it really plugs a hole in the justice mechanisms of African countries that those countries are reluctant to give up because it's a, an effective institution in many ways. Okay. Well, thank you so much. And Jenny, I hope uh, in the future shows we can talk about why it feels like the government keeps losing at the courts. It's come up a few times and it's <laughs> who's preparing these legal arguments? What is so nobody looked up that you have to go through parliament to withdraw from the ICC? I feel like that's just a matter of yeah, looking at I, the... I think that government, government needs to go into therapy about <laughs> no, I feel like you just have to <laughs> look losing. and just search and then do the thing you're supposed to do. Anyway, thank you so much for joining us. Greg Nicholson, Simon Nelson, Jenny Mulsami, thank you so much. Everybody tuning in, thanks for listening. Uh, remember, you can download and share the podcast. And we'll see you next week, same time, same place. 
Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. Cliffcentral.com.